In this episode, I'm once again joined by Dr. Ian Wickramasekera, Bone Buddhist practitioner and associate professor of transpersonal counseling at Naropa University. On the 19th of March, 2020, Ian woke up with a headache, dizziness, and fatigue. He had contracted COVID-19. While symptoms initially receded, and it seemed this might be a light case, events soon took a dramatic turn for the worse. What followed brought Ian to the very precipice of death and forced him to draw on all his decades of advanced meditation and hypnosis training. Ian recounts how, his life hanging by a thread, he experienced the dissolution of his bodily elements, of slipping into the between-lives realm of the bardo, and the emergence of the clear light of the nature of mind. We learn how, while fighting for every breath and subject to experimental medicines, Ian's practice of tumo transformed his bodily agony into spiritual bliss. Ian also reveals the life-changing consequences of this near-death experience and the radical change it has affected in his being. So without further ado, Dr. Ian Wickramasekera. Dr. Ian Wickramasekera, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thank you. So glad to be here with you, Steve. Thank you. This is our fourth episode together. And as usual, it seems, you left us on quite the cliffhanger in episode three. Uh -huh. <laughs> on, the, on the 19th of March, 2020, you woke up with a headache, dizziness and fatigue. COVID-19 was the likely cause. Your yeah. symptoms initially receded and it seemed like perhaps you were going to get off quite lightly, but mm -hmm. that wasn't to be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you oh were to face a, a cacophony of neurological crises that would bring you really right up to death's door itself. <laughs> you take us back to the beginning of that uh, time period, those early stages, and mm -hmm. uh, walk us through how it was you came to end up in such critical condition. Mm -hmm. Well, my goodness. Yeah, I'm very happy to do so. And I'm uh, just thinking uh, uh, even the last time, you know, uh, there's a, a strange way in which the adversity of uh, um, uh, this experience, I feel like really brought together like all the teachings I ever received in either the tradition of hypnosis or uh, any Dharmic uh, tradition I studied with. So while this is a kind of a, a story of uh, much suffering, also, it's a story, a story of much transcendent joy. <laughs> and and uh, at any rate, so how this all started, you're right. Uh, it was uh, March the 19th when I started to really think, maybe I have this thing, you know. Um, a few days before, I had been uh, with a client I have that, um, uh, you know, he likes to use a lot of drugs and uh, he hangs out with a lot of folks who, are using drugs on the streets and are homeless. Um, and while we were talking, he was in a very elevated mood. And uh, as sometimes happens when someone is in a manic episode, he was speaking about a thousand miles a minute and he was spitting out his mouth and this big old glob of spit just fell right in my eye. And, you know, I'm. I tried not for that to happen, but it has happened over time. If you work with people with chronic mental illness, every once in a while, this is gonna happen. So I didn't take any offense to it. Indeed, he was a bit horrified that it happened. But um, about maybe three or four days after that, I started to feel a bit sick. And uh, I was my first reaction was, 
I was kind of glad, you know, I was like, oh, this is great. You know, maybe, maybe I'll just get this illness like right off the bat, you know, and then I'll, I'll get better like most people and uh, I've been sick and I'll have some immunity. And then I even started to think about uh, all my friends who, you know, are in very immunocompromised situations. And I thought, oh, this is great. I can go and run errands for them and I'll be able to do things because I won't have to worry about it as much. At least that's what I was thinking at the time, though the picture of immunity after COVID is not as optimistic uh, now uh, as I was thinking then. But uh, yeah, I started to get a fever and I started to notice that I was just so much more um, mm, tired than I had been. Uh, also at this time, I started to have a strange pain in my knee that I didn't understand what it was about. Um, and I just assumed I'd banged it or something. Um, and around this time, uh, as I was feeling ill, uh, and kind of my daily schedule sort of fell apart. I just was not capable of being as productive as normal. Uh, I noticed that as the fever got more and more deep, my appetite went down and uh, I seemed to be getting dehydrated. And um, just like a whole days would just uh, suddenly pass by. Like I, I'd go to wake up and you know, I'd look at my phone and see what time it was. And then I thought, oh, I should take a shower and, you know, do all these things I like to do in the morning. And then like, uh, uh, I would have done none of them. And it was three hours later. And I was still thinking about trying to initiate all these behaviors that I normally just do. And maybe take me like a half hour or an hour. And I was like, wow, I must really be out of it, you know. And um, then, um, it kept getting more intense uh, and the, I was sweating a lot and I was passing whole days in this kind of uh, uh, delirious state. And uh, because I have been trained as a neuropsychologist, I, I did actually realize I was in a state of delirium, though perhaps I was a lot slower to come to that realization. Uh, and around that time, I don't know exactly when, but within uh, a few days of all of this, uh, I went to take a shower. And while I was in the shower, uh, all of a sudden, uh, everything went black. And it felt like uh, I was going to pass out um, or that I kind of already was. So I blacked out. And uh, it lasted maybe about 30 seconds. And uh, I realized. Uh, that it was likely I just suffered some form of a stroke. Um, and so this, this, this seemed bad. <laughs> this seemed very bad. And uh, at the same time, my ability to kind of mm, reason through what my next steps should be were pretty bad. And I, um, I spoke to my doctor uh, over the phone who had, at that point, um, she had gone uh, to a full like video format of treating uh, patients. And for whatever reason, she didn't seem concerned that I'd suffered a stroke, um, even though I was pretty sure I had having treated many, many folks with a stroke uh, and done a lot of uh, neuropsychological exams with people with 
stroke. I figured I'd probably suffered what they call a transient uh, ischemic attack, a mini stroke. It didn't last very long, but um, I noticed that, uh, I don't it seemed like it was more a, a brain phenomena than uh, something else. And she was trying to say that maybe the pain in my leg, like I thought maybe the pain in my leg was where a blood clot was forming. Uh, and then that had finally passed uh, up to my brain somehow. Um, and she thought, well, you know, you've done a lot of long distance running and she's a long distance runner too. And so she thought maybe it was that and that maybe because I had a fever for so long that I just had like a, an episode of very powerful uh, vasovagal syncope, you know, which is when you have a temporary insufficiency of blood supply. And I had been laying down for a long time. So, I mean, this is a, a possible hypothesis. Um, but um, I've actually had vasovagal syncope most of my life. And so I'm kind of used to what that feels like. And it usually happens after I've been lying down and then I stand up right away. But in this case, I had been standing in, uh, in the shower for more than you know, five, 10 minutes when this happened. So it, it didn't seem like there was some change in my body position that could have uh, made that possible. Oh, it is possible. Um, I don't know, I, I was a little, I was concerned. But at any rate, that's what she said. And, um, and at this time, it was very difficult to get COVID-19 uh, testing. The, the state of Colorado was at that time uh, just really ramping up to the level of testing that we have now. And so testing was preserved for people who uh, were actually going to be hospitalized uh, to you know, kind of triage them appropriately. And so I didn't really have the ability to get testing and I thought, oh, whatever, you know, I'll just take care of myself at home. And um, during that time, uh, some rather amusing things happened, actually. Um, <clears throat> and then became, I don't know, for me, I think a lot about uh, having fever always reminded of um, some of the, you know, stories of Malarepa and other yogis who, like, actually enjoyed practicing while sick, you know, and so I was kind of put my mind to that and kind of studying um, the experience of being so ill. And um, it really is not, for me at least, <clears throat> so awful. Uh, I, I find the, that the delirium kind of feelings, uh, um, they actually have a mildly kind of relaxing <laughs> nature and that it's, like a signal that you can't do as much. So I, I, I you know, cut down on all my commitments and I canceled a bunch of things that ordinarily I do and just relaxing and uh, reading <clears throat> a lot of things uh, during the day and um, just kind of appreciating the <clears throat> sort of dreamlike nature of things and relaxing. Were you afraid? No, actually, that's a, that's a I was a little afraid about maybe I had a stroke because that actually runs in my family. <clears throat> and my father at one point suffered a bunch of uh, transient ischemic attacks and lost his judgment uh, for a time and did some really crazy things. And so I started to wonder, oh Lord, you know, don't let me do such crazy things. 
by just by losing my judgment. Um, so that was something that I was <clears throat> concerned with. But other than that, the actual experience of having a temperature and uh, being in this dreamlike condition, um, I don't know, is you know, not that different from being incredibly stoned or on LSD or something. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, I kind of liked it, you know, and, um, you know, I, I don't know if I liked it, liked it, but it, uh, if it had to happen, at least I could appreciate that it was making me relax and it was making me do less. And I was enjoying spending time with my cat and days passed very, very quickly. And I was able to sleep mostly at night. And so, I don't know, it, it was okay. You know, I was definitely concerned that maybe my fevers were getting too high. Uh, and I wondered about that. Um, but um, I don't know, some really funny things happened. Like one day uh, I passed out on the couch at night and I had been watching, um, I don't even remember what I was watching, but I was watching some uh, mini series on television all day long. I might have been rewatching the Lord, the entire Lord of the Rings series if I think about it now. I think starting with The Hobbit, and then I went into that, you know. And I somehow I, I woke up in the uh, maybe it was like uh, I don't know four or five a.m. or something, having spent the whole night on the television with the television screen uh, flashing at me in this weird way, and uh, I looked up on my living room wall um, and suddenly there was a window in my living room wall that had never been there. And on the other side of that living room wall is actually a garage. And I remembered that, I was like, hey, there's a garage on the other side, now there's a window. And now on top of that, there was a man behind that window. And he was kind of like standing there, he's kind of like this sort of uh, average looking uh, um, kind of uh, friendly looking white man. And uh, he's just kind of, uh, <laughs> this is like maybe like 10 feet off the ground, you know? So also, I don't know what, what he was standing on, but he's like uh, there in the window. And, uh, and at this moment, I guess some of the, the lucid dreaming, uh, dreaming training kind of uh, struck me because I was seeing this and realizing probably there's not window there, but yet I'm seeing guy there. And uh, so, um, I realized that this must be a dream, uh, kind of intuitively. And so then I was like, hey, uh, how you doing? <laughs> and so I start talking to this man behind the window. And, uh, you know, he's like, oh, we're doing fine. You know, it's a good day. And, you know, this kind of thing. And we were just sort of chatting about normal things. People who don't know each other chat about weather. How, how was your day? And then about five minutes into it, uh, I was like, you know, I'm pretty sure that I don't have a window in my living room wall. And then he said, yeah, that's true. Uh, you should probably go to the hospital today. And then the window and him vanished. <laughs> and that was around the time that a new symptom appeared. And that was, uh, at first I, uh, I was having trouble walking. And at first I thought it was because I, um, I knew that I had lost weight because I hadn't been eating much. And um, so I thought I'm just weak. Um, but as I tried to go down the stairs with uh, a few 
hours after that had happened, um, I noticed that uh, it was not just um, feeling weak. I was actually having a lot of trouble with the act of uh, balancing. Um, something was actually wrong with my balance. And so I thought, well, that's, that's different, but maybe I'm just weak and uh, hungry. Um, and I asked this dear friend of mine, who's a, a nurse, just such a wonderful woman, uh, would she uh, help bring me some uh, delicious food, you know? And so she uh, brought me all this uh, delicious food and uh, a ton of uh, other things I didn't ask, Gatorade and all kinds of things. And because she's a, a nurse that worked at the time with uh, a very immunocompromised person, <clears throat> she just put it at my door and then um, we talked through the door. Um, and But by that time, <clears throat> something even worse had happened, which was I had actually begun to lose the ability to stand at all. Um, and I was now, uh, not only could I not <clears throat> balance going down the stairs, I just it was just very strange. Um, I had spent some t in time in the intermediate time um, uh, in my bed. And when I went to get out of the bed, and this is just a few hours later, um, I found I was just couldn't uh, stand on my feet. And I was like, uh, without leaning on something, I couldn't stand. Uh, I just didn't and it, the weird thing was that it didn't seem, there was a strength issue involved, but it didn't seem, it seemed like just somehow the muscles didn't, ha weren't able to do it. And um, I had no idea uh, what this was anymore. It didn't seem like a stroke thing. So I was a little <laughs> relieved about that. <clears throat> but um, next thing I know, uh, I had been preparing for her to arrive and that was maybe four or five hours later. And um, I had to actually um, start crawling around my house. And uh, when she arrived and being a nurse, she immediately uh, was like, oh, this is really bad. You know, uh, you need to go to the hospital immediately. And uh, <laughs> being the stubborn person that I am, I said, okay, I, I see this, um, but let me look into what would be the cheapest way for me to do this. Because <laughs> uh, I was very afraid that I was gonna select an ambulance. Now, unfortunately, the way medical care, the for-profit medical care works in the United States, there are all kinds of ways that you can get uh, totally uh, bankrupted by medical debt. And I was afraid this was the situation. Um, so I, I said, well, let me call my insurance company and find out, you know, how am I supposed to get to the hospital, uh, you know, without losing my shirt and then which hospital I'm supposed to go to that they actually pay for. Uh, and so I went to start doing that and uh, she went off and um, I think I must have, uh, around this time, it seemed like my fever had broken actually. So I was actually feeling okay. Like I thought, oh, you know, I just need to eat this food and maybe I'll be better. And so I ate a bunch of food and indeed it tasted quite tasty. She brought me all this wonderful barbecue. It was so wonderful. It's one of my favorite American foods is <laughs> a barbecue meat. And uh, it's a Southern tradition here, smoking meats is quite wonderful. Um, and I just kept waiting to feel better. 
And indeed, I, I didn't feel feverish anymore, but um, the undeniable fact was that uh, when I first started crawling, I was feeling like I could do that pretty strongly. And now, um, actually, I had lost even more strength. And I was actually um, not able to use my legs too well in crawling. And I was actually more pushing myself with my arms. And I actually got to the point where I could no longer push myself up on the couch. And that's when I thought, oh, God, you know. And, uh, I had actually somehow talked to some people from my insurance company, and they had told me about a hospital that um, they had a preferred relationship with, and it was a good enough hospital for me as far as I was concerned. Uh, and so I came to terms with that, and uh, around then, my good friend uh, Bethany calls me on the phone, the nurse, and she's like, hey, you know, did you go to the hospital yet? And I was like, no. I was like, he's like, come on, you know. Then she sort of like um, took over and said, well, I'm just going to call the ambulance, you know, and talk. I'll stay on the phone with you. And so she did. She called an ambulance. And by the time they got there, I actually uh, had lost even more ability. Uh, I, I couldn't get up on the couch and I was just kind of laying on the floor. Um, and it was so ironic to me because I, I didn't feel that I had a fever anymore and I, I just didn't understand what was happening. I knew that I'd probably had a, a stroke earlier in the week. And so I thought, gosh, I hope this is not related to that. You know, have I been bleeding out all this time or some weird thing? And uh, um, so I was actually looking forward to the uh, gentleman arriving. Uh, and they did really quickly after she called and she stayed on the phone with me. Uh, and then I reached this kind of unfortunate um, experience, um, which was that because I didn't have a fever anymore and I had these weird symptoms and we do have this uh, tremendous uh, opioid uh, drug crisis in this country and perhaps because I have long hair and uh, I was wearing uh, uh, a tank top of Lord uh, Sri Krishna. No, no, I'm sorry, Lord uh, Shiva. Uh, I think they sort of right away thought I was a drug overdose. And so they were kept asking me about what drugs I had taken. And they you know, wanted to maybe administer Narcan to me or something. They thought maybe I was, and so it took me a long time to convince them that actually you know this wasn't that you know I was not uh into opiates and actually never have been <laughs> uh you know <laughs> and there was I was like I was like no I, I wish this was that then you know this could be over you know not not that uh and um I tried to explain to them that I was a you know a, a neuropsychologist and that you know something else was going on here and trying to explain it but I guess to them, I looked like a drug user and uh, they got kind of irritated with me. And the strange thing was, uh, I don't know if they were trying to test the limits of like, was I faking it or whatever, but um, they wouldn't, um, they wouldn't uh, put me on a stretcher and get me out of there. You know, they said they made this excuse like the stretcher wouldn't fit through the door, uh, which is not really true. Uh, and so I, I finally, I said, well, you know, I'll just use my strength and crawl out of here if that'll help, you know, 
And so I crawled out of, uh, I had to crawl about five feet on this concrete, you know, over to their stretcher. And then I guess uh, some firemen arrived and then um, they all just, the ambulance guys didn't want to do it for some reason. And um, I guess they just thought I was a drug abuser. Uh, I don't know, this is really not a good way to treat drug abusers, by the way. Anyway, this was really awful. Uh, but at any rate, the firemen just uh, lifted me up and put me on the stretcher and uh, they started taking me to the hospital. And they kept you know, like quizzing me about whether I was on uh, heroin or you know fentanyl or some such thing. Um, and when I got there, um, uh, the first medical professionals on the scene uh, seemed to rule that possibility out very quickly. I don't know what what it was that they weren't seeing that made them realize it wasn't that. And then <clears throat> they started thinking about uh, this COVID-19 and it's uh, something that I wasn't aware of at the time, how, how many other neurological conditions it can create. And um, uh, they sent me to all kinds of testing and MRIs and kept uh, drawing so much blood. Uh, by the time I left there, Although I'm uh, not an IV drug user, I looked like one. I had to, you know, after a week there, I had so many track marks on my arms. It was ridiculous from uh, being taken so many blood samples and uh, medications and uh, poked and prodded all over the place. Um, and uh, it was pretty extreme because they, they really were having difficulty figuring out what might be going wrong with me. But about three hours after I was there, this neurologist uh, comes to see me. And um, unbeknownst to me, he was one of the uh, mm, most prominent neurologists in the entire area. Uh, and in particular, he was very well known uh, for his treatment of a syndrome called Guillain-Barre syndrome. And um, he asked about the progression of my symptoms. Uh, I said that it, it started with uh, my feet and my legs, and then uh, it seemed like even my arms were uh, going out. And uh, as, as he was asking me these questions, I started to realize, oh yeah, there's a progression of this. I was like, and so then I was like, oh, this can't be so much worse then, right? It's like already done its worst. Like, you know, I'm losing sensation and, and uh, ability to use my motor neurons in my feet and legs and my arms and uh, you know, it can't get much worse, right? And, and he's like, no, <laughs> uh, you know, this, if this continues, uh, you're going to lose the ability to breathe. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and it's like, yeah. Uh, and I think this might've been on the second day I was at the hospital when he said this, and uh, they wanted to do a lumbar puncture of my spine to see if they could find out if indeed I had uh, Epstein-Barr and Guillain-Barre, which he thought I did. Uh, uh, Epstein-Barr is a disease that causes a lot of weakness and uh, other issues, and Guillain-Barre is a progressive motor uh, neuron uh, dysregulation. and. Uh, so you lose the ability to walk and this kind of thing. And eventually it can kill you by uh, not being able to breathe. And um, I think it was maybe my second day at that hospital that uh, 
uh, he told me that um, they didn't have a positive sign of uh, Guillain Beret, but I did have Epstein Barr. Uh, but he felt that I did have uh, Guillain Beret. And he said the fact that I, they didn't have a positive indication of that at the time was not necessarily an indication I didn't have it. Also, he said, uh, what he said about my breathing uh, being disrupted actually came to pass, that my oxygen saturation levels were going down, uh, which I typically I think are like in the 90s, and mine was going now down into the 80s. And um, so, you know, I've actually been with people uh, many times in the hospital, uh, uh, when their O2 levels are declining. I've worked with a lot of people who have um, uh, COPD, you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease from, you know, lung cancer and all kinds of conditions. And uh, I've given them a lot of breathing uh, exercise trainings, you know, <laughs> usually mindfulness, but, you know, other things too, to kind of help them cope with the difficulty of it. And uh, usually, uh, if you breathe voluntarily in this way, your O2 levels will climb. And um, mine were now really uh, in a level that I knew uh, affected consciousness and um, that it was, you know, uh, actually very serious. Um, and so I was like, oh, this is great. I like have all this training in hypnosis and uh, meditation. Uh, wow, I'll just really, you know, focus on my breathing and keep the O2 levels up as best I could. And I'm a biofeedback guy. And so I was just actually watching uh, the sensors that, you know, that were meant for them to watch. Uh, but I was using it as a form of bio psychophysiology and biofeedback. And so I uh, was just actually kind of enjoying the challenge of that and also controlling all the pain from the difficulties I had with um, at this point, I was now unable to move my body and I was paralyzed. I could move my head and my hands and my fingers a little bit, but I, I didn't actually even have the strength to really hold a cell phone for very long and it would generally fall out of my hands. Um, and uh, so this was starting to feel very strange to me. Um, uh, my, the last experience that I'd had like that uh, was when I had been strangled to death, you know. Uh, and I just started to feel that my uh, connection to uh, the energies in my body, uh, they were waning. And I was starting to feel that actually uh, there was this separation of uh, my body, you know, my nirmanakaya is uh, <laughs> kind of uh, dissolving and I was starting to feel that actually I was uh, moving into kind of like Bardo experience. Um, and also around this time, uh, some of the, uh, I, I don't know if you've read this, probably you have, but uh, a lot of times, you know, folks in Bardo experiences start to have, you know, kind of uh, deeply psychic experiences. And so I started to uh, actually see people in the room um, that I knew were either alive or dead that were uh, praying for me. So in particular, I saw some dear friends uh, were there. Uh, I saw uh, my guru and I've been trying to get in touch with my guru and in uh, 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 two of my uh, dear teachers, uh, I was able to get through to. And, uh, you know, I was hoping they would 
uh, be saying some uh, medicine Buddha practice or uh, some uh, other Bonpo practices as they would do for me. And which I knew teachers, that, which teachers had you contacted? Uh, Geshe Jungdrung, uh, the one who lives here in uh, uh, Denver area. And also uh, Tenpa Nima Jungdrung Rinpoche, who I've been studying with uh, the most, most recently in the last uh, four years uh, is very kindly, this is longer than that actually, it's more like six years, I guess. Uh, and you know, I've seen him like twice a year for the last six years has been really wonderful. Um, yeah, even he invited me to some of his uh, family events and things. He's a very, very kind teacher. Uh, and so they started to give me um, some instruction. Uh, and the instruction was uh, to say this wonderful healing mantra, you know, that uh, we have. It comes from Sipi Gyalmo, which is like a deity very much associated in Tibet with actually all the traditions. It's also known as uh, Yeshe Walmo, uh, this kind of thing. Uh, a lot of traditions have her as a guardian. Uh, Paul Din Lamo is, an, is a kind of Galupa name, I think. Uh, and uh, so I was really uh, saying this mantra and uh, also um, uh, they remind me uh, also, you know, that I should, you know, pray for healing but also uh, not to be too attached and actually uh, prepare myself for dying. Were these specters or visions of your teachers giving you that instruction or was that instruction you'd received from them, their living forms to say? There's a comma through text that the nurses were kindly uh, showing me. And uh, uh, so I had uh, my cell phone with me. It's funny the things that you, you know, hold on to the last minute. <laughs> I had this wonderful uh, necklace, of, a blessing uh, of health necklace I received in a healing practice with a very special character on it. Uh, I had a perba that my good friend uh, Dale Azriel has given me uh, that's, uh, you know, uh, sort of associated with perba practice. And uh, uh, then I had a uh, cell phone. These were my three <laughs> objects I had with me, you know. <laughs> Uh, I believe I had a Dharma book, but I don't remember which one I had at that point. Uh, but uh, so uh, I had been trying to contact my teachers and both of them actually very quickly contacted me back and let them let me know they were doing uh, uh, practice for me. And um, actually all the monks in uh, the mon monastery in Kathmandu were doing practice and uh, it's wonderful. and. I could actually feel it. Um, uh, I could feel, uh, I feel connected to people around the world who's doing practice for me. And as it happens, a number of my former students um, were actually posting a lot of updates about what was going on with me and asking people to pray. And uh, it was amazing. Uh, like literally uh, thousands of people were praying for me and I had some experience of that. Uh, I must say that um, having, uh, I was on the COVID floor and um, at this hospital and um, I could feel the loneliness of the people around me. I was in a room by myself, but um, I could feel the loneliness of all the people because 
you know, no one could come and visit you at this point. Um, and if you're like me and you're not really able to interact with people on Facebook too much, except when maybe a nice nurse would come in. And, and even, even then, like they weren't supposed to stay very long for their own safety, of course. I understood that. Um, so it, it could potentially have been a very lonely experience, but I just felt that blessings were raining down on me from all these people praying in many different traditions. Um, I know I've been very fortunate to know very wonderful people in many uh, lineages, uh, both Tibetan and otherwise, you know, and so even some wonderful dear friends of mine and the Lima tradition, uh, a lot of people in uh, Christian tradition praying for me. Uh, I guess I was included on a number of churches, uh, prayer lists and things. And uh, I, so I felt this, you know, constant, um, and then also kind of being in this Bardo experience since I didn't really feel my body too much anymore. Uh, at one point the neurologist came in and um, he said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm gonna you know, see how things are going with you. Will you tell me which hand am I touching? Uh, I'm sorry, which foot am I touching with my hand? And so <laughs> I looked with my eyes and I said, you're, you're touching my right foot. And he said, no, no, not with your eyes. Close your eyes. You know, it's like, I was like, I thought you were a neuropsychologist. I was like, yes, I am. Close my eyes. And then uh, I said, okay, you're touching my left foot, you know. And then uh, he said, open your eyes. He was touching my left knee. <laughs> and I was like, oh, boy, the old somatosensory cortex is all messed up, you know. And he looked very gravely at me at that point and said, uh, you know, maybe you have another 12 hours, you know, because it maybe another 12 or 13 hours, if there is not some uh, disruption in the progression of this Guillain Beret, even though we don't have the positive indication of this now, um, you will lose the ability to breathe altogether. And maybe we can keep you alive on a ventilator or maybe you will not come back. Um, and it's, I, I need to tell you this. And uh, I was like, oh, because I was just thinking I'll just keep doing my crazy hypnosis and meditation and eventually this will, you know, come back or I didn't know what. Uh, and uh, then he said he wanted to do um, this very special treatment that he uh, knew how to prepare a medicine out of a blood assays and things. Um, as a kind of a immunological uh, chemotherapy. And um, I was like, yeah, sure, go ahead. <laughs> Fine, <laughs> this sounds great, you know. Uh, and so he went off to prepare this medicine, which at the time, uh, though, and uh, the cost of it, I don't even care now, but uh, cost of this was something like, uh, I believe it's like $15,000, you know, to make this medicine. And it was going to take like five days, you know. Uh, and I think it actually ended up being more than that. I think it was like $20,000 or something ridiculous like this. Uh, which, you know, uh, he didn't tell me that. It was not like I would have refused it or something. And I was like, no, that's too much. Do you have a cheaper one? You know, do you have the placebo version? That'll be fine, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> just don't tell me it's placebo and I'll, I'll be fine, you know. Uh, but uh, so this was 
this is like really great. And um, and then uh, I really felt the bardo uh, was really arriving, especially now that my body connection was so dysregulated and it felt like uh, the energies of my body were uh, kind of dissolving. And um, at the same time, I had a much stronger awareness of, um, I guess what we would call the nature of mind. You know, I was really uh, feeling extremely present focused. Um, and uh, I think like anyone after he told me that, uh, I guess I had been so focused on what I could do to work with my health condition that I wasn't thinking about the kind of clinging to myself that was inherent in that. But then when he was saying like, you know, maybe this is it and you got like maybe 12 hours. Uh, and that kind of struck me differently. <laughs> it's like, oh, I can keep doing what I'm doing, but I'm still going to die. You know, it's like I can control all this pain and the, the suffering, you know, not being able to move and losing my connection to my body uh, and you know I can kind of cope with and, and find interest in it is what I was trying to and curiosity about it like what was still left and what did what was it like to live without a body because I hadn't really experienced that since I'd been strangled to death uh, and I was kind of half feeling that um, and so I was, you know to me that was all fairly manageable up until when he said like oh you know rides over you know, you get 12 hours, you know. Uh, and I started to think uh, desperately about like, uh, you know, my son is only uh, at the time 16 years old, now he's 17. And I was thinking, oh, this is not good. You know, I, I wanted to do more for him. You know, I wanted to live longer and help him in his life. And in the same way that my father, particularly around this age, you know, 17 became very, very helpful to me. I was really looking forward to this time and uh, introducing him more and more to the mysteries of life, which, you know, we've, we've uh, done uh, throughout his life anyways, but I wanted to, you know, go further, you know, and kind of re-experience all the mysteries of the illusionary world and self, uh, the way that my dad did with me, I wanted to do with him and, uh, mysteries of hypnosis and meditation and things. Uh, you know, already I shared these things, but we, you know, there's still much, so much more. And uh, I was like, oh man, what a bummer, you know? And uh, uh, I started thinking about other people I loved that I would not see again. And um, so it was like about a full half hour, I was like really uh, thinking about all the things I was losing. And it was, there were all people. Like not one of them was like all these things, you know, like this, this tonka on the wall or, you know, it was all people. This is all the people I'm losing, you know, not a book I paid $200 for or something, you know. Uh, and experiences, you know, experiences. And then um, that was around the point when uh, spontaneously, uh, suddenly, it occurred to me, thinking of all the things that I, I would be uh, leaving behind and losing, I was like, wow, what a fucking lucky guy you are. You know, it's like, even that you had these people in your life and uh, I could feel their 
a lot of them who are still alive and even some who are dead. Uh, my sister was in the room with me and she's been gone. Uh, how long has my sister been gone now? Eight years, eight years. And it really seemed like my sister was in the room and my grandmother who has been dead many, many years. Uh, and then I had these wonderful friends and lovers uh, just all around. Uh, I could feel all of them. And I was like, geez, you know, uh, how did I get so lucky? You know, I got to study the Dharma at an extremely high level. I got to practice in secret lineages practically of uh, many traditions you know, of, uh, of the Dharma and uh, also uh, hypnosis. This is more like open secret lineages <laughs> of hypnosis that just barely even hear about. And now I started thinking about uh, how I studied the great mysteries of the mind and uh, how fortunate I was to have these amazing teachers and all these traditions. I was like, damn. And I started thinking about all these people who had invested so much time and love in me and even they're praying for me to stay alive. Uh, some who are dead were doing, you know, it was really uh, amazing. Uh, and I just started, it, the whole thing switched into gratitude. And so um, I would say this mantra the uh, guru gives to me is, you know, Om Abhyana Govizoha. So I just say this mantra, many thousands of times and uh and just letting my mind uh, just um, process all this gratitude for my life and uh bardo become very strong at this point and um you know i don't know if this is delusion or not but uh i started to really feel the possibilities of the bardo in particular uh time travel became very real to me uh so I, I had the feeling intuitively that uh, after I died, I would have the ability to go forward in time. Uh, like the way you were suggesting, by the way, of going down different paths. And uh, I wanted to follow the path of my son and uh, go forward in time. And then, you know, uh, like I had this idea that every once in a while I would say some fucked up shit to him, you know, <laughs> like when something cool was going on in his life, I would say something, you know, I don't know, the little force will be with you always or some shit like this, you know, and, uh, something funny and encouraging, you know. Uh, I actually have this experience with my sister. Uh, my sister died uh, actually of a, a very aggressive form of pneumonia uh, eight years ago. And uh, every once in a while, when something is going on in my life, I will feel her uh, presence and she will say generally something pretty sarcastic to me. Like it's usually when I've done something dumb and then she'll say, dumbass, you know? So I was kind of thinking I would do this uh, with my son and uh, some other dear friends of mine who uh, have a young uh, baby, my friends, Jenna and Eric and, uh, I feel they have a very special child. And so I wanted to kind of follow them in their life uh, and encourage them as parents and this kind of thing. Uh, they have been the best uh, friends ever in so many different contexts. Uh, but at any rate, uh, so I started to feel this possibility and I was thinking about that and kind of looking forward to it. And actually, uh, 
I lost uh, totally. That's actually, this is the funny thing is that uh, maybe about four hours into this kind of uh, just beautiful experience of gratitude and uh, at the same time, like I never felt alone, not for one minute. You know, was, the room was crowded with uh, beings alive and, and not alive, you know, and uh, blessings raining on me. And uh, also I'm uh, try uh, then realize I have so much wealth uh, here. This is, uh, I must help these people in the hospital. And so I did a little uh, Tonglen, you know, for those there and then uh, try uh, extending out, you know, for all sentient beings everywhere like you do in stages of Tonglen practice and just kind of doing this. And uh, it's really sad, you know, there is one person, uh, maybe like one or two rooms for me, I'm not quite sure. Um, and I heard their um, um, alarm monitors go off a number of times, um, but I uh, I heard them die. I heard they go off, and I heard them. You know, uh, there are certain code words they use in the hospital, which I think most people know now. When they say "code blue," that doesn't mean you know a good thing. <laughs> it means someone is dying, and everyone available needs to run. And I heard them say a code blue. And um, a few hours later, they wheeled me out of the place to take me for a test. And I went by the room where I thought it happened and the bed was now empty. And this person had died. And uh, so I was really um, trying to do a lot of practice uh, for those who were there. And may they feel cared for and feel blessings. Uh, may everything I'm receiving, may they have you know, a million fold, may this be. Uh, give them to me. I'm not, you know, save even one bit for myself. May everyone experience this goodness, you know, may all. So that, that, that was really uh, wonderful. And I was totally prepared to die. And actually, um, you know, the, what I, the advice I had been given was to pray for the healing, but also prepare for death. And so at this point, um, I had really worked through all this attachment, you know, and instead of thinking about what I would miss, I was more feeling gratitude for what I'd received and feeling very satisfied. Like if this is all that I, I could experience in life, I was really, really lucky and um, so much gratitude. Thank you, all the beings who have helped me in this life. Thank you. It was wonderful. Um, and they, uh, maybe about four hours in, uh, neurologist arrives and said, we don't have the positive test still, but I can clearly see you're, you know, you're dying. So we're just gonna give you this medicine. And uh, if it doesn't work, it's not going to kill you. If it works, it may save you. So we'll do this. And so then they um, hooked me up to this medicine and uh, it's an IV, you know, and, uh, Kind of funny to kind of look at it, a $20,000 IV, you know, I was looking at this thing. I didn't at the time know it was that expensive, but I, I gathered it was a very special thing he had made himself. Uh, and uh, it burned like fire. Uh, it was, it was amazing. And um, because I had done all this tumo practice, right, then I had a way of thinking of that, like it wasn't all bad, you know. I was like, yeah, it's burning away all impurities and 
you know, the primordial fireball of wisdom, you know, and so it did, it started to circulate through, it felt very much like a fire energy was going through all my body. And um, if I wanted to, if I, I realized that I could using my hypnosis transform that into some something else. And um, I don't know if that's really hypnosis as compared to dharmic experience. I think, I think it was all one thing at that point. Um, and, but I very easily was able to transform that so I could tolerate the medicine. And because I thought, well, you know, I'll just really give this thing a chance to work. I'm not going to say it's too painful and take it out. <laughs> I think it's going to, it may save my life. It might as well, you know, work with it. And so I, it was very painful. And they offered me all kinds of uh, opiate medicine for this, uh, and which I generally refused because. Uh, um, I feel like uh, I, you know, have the skill to do surgical hypnosis. I don't, if it's just going to be short term, you know, I can do this. And also, I was kind of interested, in and I thought if I can't do it, then I'll just ask for the medicine. No big deal, you know. So um, I just uh, kind of took the pain and the suffering of that, and uh, kind of transform into uh, bliss, and just really feeling very blissful, like in the tumult. Uh, state uh it's really uh tumo is not a state actually but whatever uh tumo practice is a better way to say that uh and uh it was interesting um and after some time uh because they were coming in about every half hour to check on my respiration and they had me do these various uh tests of my uh breathing muscles as well had me do this thing where you blow into a, a device and the, it's a kind of a pneumatic force dynamometer of some sort. And uh, and the levels were improving after, I don't know. I don't know how long that was, maybe four or five hours. The levels started to improve. So I wasn't sure how much of that was me getting better at using my mind-body relationship uh, and working with the situation, how much was the medicine, but either way, uh, my O2 levels were getting better. So that was, that was a good sign. And uh, sure enough, um, actually, uh, at one point uh, before the medicine, I realized that uh, if I fell asleep at this point, I probably wouldn't wake up again. Hmm. And that um, I was probably keeping my O2 sat levels in the range where I didn't uh, lose consciousness altogether. And so it pretty much had to breathe every breath consciously. It was a real struggle uh, to do it. And also not to be horrified by the fact that I had to do something consciously that ordinarily was, you know, autonomic. Uh, but um, I don't know, everything was coming together where I was like, yes, that is true. Uh, and that is actually something uh, that is, you know, uh, threatening. Um, but um, I'm just going to keep doing the best that I can, even and work with everything as it arrives, and not try to deny that this is happening or get them to give me some pain meds or something that will uh, uh, just kind of put me in this um, good place. Uh, I will keep working with it myself, and it was very threatening and anxious, but. I really, you don't hold on to something, it, it dissolves of its own nature, you know, 
And so, yeah, it'd be horrible and horrific for some time. And then after some time, yeah, I'm, I'm still going. So, you know, uh, it would just, all of that would just dissolve of its own nature. I didn't need to repress it. And it's actually very interesting. Uh, very, I felt uh, that all these teachings I received uh, in different ways, you know, from hypnosis and uh, various Dharma teachers, particularly Zogchen, really put me in this place where this didn't have to be so bad. It actually, uh, and even the idea of dying, uh, I was actually now looking forward to a little bit because I wanted to do all, see if I could do all these crazy things with the time travel. Uh, and um, and I knew that, you know, at some point that would end and I'd be another person or, uh, I don't know, maybe <laughs> I was so lucky, maybe I'd, to be liberated in the bardo itself i don't know uh it, would, it was enough for me to play a few practical jokes <laughs> so sort of, my main attachment to the bardo was that i wanted to leave some loving practical jokes to close people um but uh i was prepared i was fully prepared and um i was not that very attached anymore to the body I was ready to leave behind and then, actually, I didn't die. <laughs> this powerful medicine uh, saved my life. I was a very brilliant neurologist who uh, kind of uh, took a risk in giving me the medicine, even though I didn't have a positive test. Like, I, I think actually the risk he took, which is kind of a sad thing to say, is that if uh, it hadn't worked, uh, and it turned out I didn't have Guillain-Barre syndrome, I wonder if they'd had to eat the $20,000 cost of the medicine, you know, like it wouldn't be reimbursed and they would have lost a lot of money for the hospital, uh, um, which is kind of a weird thing to say, right? And think about what is the value of human life and uh, a capitalistic pay uh, for profit medicine is uh, how it, I mean, there's also a value in any kind of socialistic uh, solution as well, which I definitely prefer. I wish I had a national health service in myself here. Uh, maybe I won't wish that if I was in one, I don't know. Maybe grass is always greener on the other side, but uh, uh, at any rate, um, I, yeah, I started to really realize that um, this guy had actually uh, saved my life. Because uh, then the other thing that happened was, uh, it was also, um, I had to keep going was my ability swallow because I had started to lose the ability to swallow so that I couldn't drink uh, water and that was also a ticking time bomb um, that you know if I simply could have choked to death uh, I was in this really frail state where I could have easily have choked to death because I couldn't no longer swallow and things um, this actually persisted for maybe three days after this medicine was given to me this swallowing difficulties but um, you know, I was really working with that too. Um, but yeah, this not breathing and not being able to swallow was uh, you know, really going to kill me. Um, and uh, I understood that and I, I accepted it. And I just tried to work with it the best that I could. And um, it was interesting to me that, uh, um, that not being attached to that actually made it so much better. Like I was not so anxious about it that I I couldn't actually work with it. I, I found that even though I couldn't reverse it, 
I could work with it. And I found that to be uh, uh, interesting and hopeful. And um, so I was not repressing the fear of dying, uh, but I found that in facing it, it actually uh, liberated itself, you know, into gratitude and uh, uh, thinking how lucky I have been in this life and, and uh, started to turn that practice towards, uh, it's really like a chud practice, you know, <laughs> like a chud where you imagine that you're giving your body, speech, mind for all sentient beings so that they may not suffer and transforming that experience into like an amrita that takes away all the suffering of all sentient beings. And um, I guess, yeah, all of these practices, Tumo and uh, Chud, and um, also I must say, um, the experience of using psychedelics was very helpful here too, in that one of these things that uh, I learned, at least myself, through using psychedelic medicines, I uh, used LSD quite a bit, we talked about that in the first one. Uh, also, I used ayahuasca one at a time, um, I've learned that uh, how important it is not to be attached to um, what you think the experience you're going to have is going to be like with psychedelics. That most of the bad experiences, that uh, difficult experiences I had on psychedelics were when I refused to accept things as they happened. And if I actually allowed things to happen as they happen, which is, you know, I think actually a great Dzogchen lesson, you know, leave it as it is, as uh, Yangtzean Rinpoche likes to say, is the teacher of all our, all my teachers is Yangtzean Rinpoche. And the most popular, uh, you know, wisdom saying that you hear from him to al answer almost any question is, you know, leave it as it is. And it's a great Dzogchen master. And uh, so the same thing is true with psychedelic experience. He's like, deal with, let things be as they are. A little bit like how I was relating to this man in my wall. <laughs> You know, this is like, I'm pretty sure I don't have man in my wall, but hey, how you doing there? You know, and, you know, and uh, uh, so, yeah, I just really uh, was not uh, that I would wish that this happened to me or anyone else. In fact, I dearly wish not anyone to experience this suffering. That would be nice. But on the other hand, uh, I also wish that everyone could experience will experience that we all have this innate potential that even the worst adversity can be transformed into something extremely useful about discovering who we really are uh, that is not dependent on any external circumstance or any internal circumstance and that this distinction between this internal and external is actually quite illusory anyways uh, and our connection to everyone is uh, so much more powerful. Uh, I really learned that by all these people praying for me and how directly I was feeling that in my body and, uh, and in um, my mind. You know, my mind stream was very powerful and I could feel uh, and see people would you know, kind of arrive as uh, uh, images. <laughs> like a force ghost in uh, Star Wars, you know, and some people were there the whole time, actually, it's very amazing, you know, my good friend, uh, Bethany, the nurse, you know, she's there the whole time, and act I later learned uh, that she was outside the hospital 
uh, under what she thought was the room I was in. And even so she couldn't see me, she was out there praying and my a good friend uh, and lover Shana Bute was there too. And I uh, would feel them, you know, coming in and out of my room. And uh, it's really wonderful. Uh, I don't know how a person gets so lucky that they live their whole life and accumulate such powerful uh, friends and uh, lovers and you know family members is so wonderful. Um, so I would say that I I wish no one to experience this, but I also wish everyone would experience this, which is a little why I'm kind of glad to share this part uh, with everyone because uh, uh, I feel like the process of dying. Uh, I feel a little sadness that I didn't die. You know, it's like I went through all this work and effort, you know. Uh, and I don't know if effort is actually the right way of saying that because it all was arising spontaneously just by processing things. So I guess that is a kind of work. I, I had, I could have chosen to have gone into more attachment or something. Uh, well, I don't know. Um, it, uh, I would not have chosen for this to happen, but I'm actually really glad it happened. And I feel deeply liberated uh, by uh, some of my attachments in life to going through that experience. And uh, I don't really think about, um, I guess I had never really thought about death the same way after the first time I had a near death experience. But now, I don't know, somehow that attachment um, feels even less. And I'm, I'm actually very excited about being alive. And you know, what else can I do with this uh, crazy, uh, wonderful journey? And how much more benefit uh, can I be to people with uh, uh, the life that I have left? I, I don't know. It could end tomorrow. You know, <laughs> it's like a little while ago they said some meteor might hit the planet. You know, on the day before the election. <laughs> and, you know, who knows? Uh, you know, next moment. You know, while we're filming this, uh, this uh, Apophis asteroid to come and hit us or something, um, or I may have another stroke. Oh, and actually, they did verify I had a stroke. <laughs> the, they, they did so many MRIs. They told me it was of my cerebellum, actually, uh, and uh, it's very interesting. Uh, so I've been having to deal with some a bit of uh, cognitive deficits and be a little less attached to my intellect, which I have to admit, I have throughout my life, has been the thing I'm most attached to is actually the my intellect. Uh, so that's been a useful lesson too. Um, yeah, it's uh, I'm very grateful that this happened to me. Um, it's very strange to say that, you know, like, um, I feel it was a great um, blessing, really, uh, to learn about uh, my attachment to my body and uh, experience uh, the bardo to some extent, and um, also to learn uh, how how much of my meaning in life is uh, derived through uh, relationships with other people, and what a blessing uh, they have been in my life. I can never repay the kindness that was uh, shown to me during that time. Uh, there's no way, it was just so, so much, so much was done uh, for my behalf. Not just the wonderful nurses and, and doctors, you know, I only mentioned a little bit of that. I had some of the best medical, I've worked in hospitals. And so I can really tell you, uh, you know, 
I had some of the best medical care a person could receive. It's, and you know, it all happened randomly. They didn't even take me to the hospital I wanted to go to. They said, you're dying and we're taking you to the closest one. And just by random, I ended up being, you know, the, one of the most brilliant neurologists in our area uh, was working there. And uh, all of the people that interacted with me were so kind. Even they, they played goofy games with me, like they braided my hair one day, you know, and made me look like, a, you know, I had corn rolls and all kinds of goofy stuff. And, uh, you know, they were very kind. And they stayed much longer in the room than, you know, I think they were actually even supposed to. Uh, and they were the most wonderful people. Um, and then, um, you know, I lived and uh, uh, then I had a new struggle, you know, which was, um, I was now completely paralyzed. And uh, I had the sense of being able to walk, but uh, there was no doubt I could barely move my arms and my legs. I could barely lift uh, more than maybe a centimeter. You know, even that was even after a few days of that medicine. And I was on that medicine for five days and they uh, took me to a very nice uh, neuro rehabilitation hospital that just happened to exist uh, about an hour north of the city. As uh, all my rehab options to learn how to walk again, uh, they were very bad. Mostly they were like someone would come to my house. But they said if I was willing to go to this hospital that was like, I think it's like an hour and a half. I'm not really sure where it is. Uh, I know that it's near this uh, place called Greeley, but it's a, a town I've never been to other than during this experience. And I was not uh, able to really see it in an ambulance. But they took me there and um, uh, again, this incredibly auspicious coincidence, they had just finished treating someone with Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is actually really rare. Like Epstein-Barr people get this, but rarely do people get Guillain-Barre where your motor neurons are you know, uh, dysregulated so badly uh, and even thought to be demyelinated so they're not functioning. And so mine were in such a bad state, I could not walk, I could not move my legs, even more than maybe a centimeter when I got to that hospital. But I was so fortunate. The, the doctor who had, uh, was assigned to me had just treated a young man with Guillain-Barre syndrome, which apparently is happening a lot more than normal with uh, COVID-19. Uh, doesn't happen to everyone, but it, it does happen. <laughs> and uh, uh, so th there were uh, three physical therapists there who had worked extensively with this young man who was actually still there when I got there, but I was not able to meet him. Uh, and so they knew exactly what to do because they just treated this. And you know, to find uh, a doctor and even physical therapists who knew exactly what to do and had just practiced doing that for uh, you know, four or five weeks, this is like amazing. You know, such an auspicious, and I feel like these blessings that I was receiving just kept occurring like this. And the, all of the medical people who treated me were fantastic and had special knowledge of what to do. Uh, it's really, uh, I could not have asked for better medical care. And then on top of it, many of these people were, had the best sense of humor ever, which I love to joke all the time. Uh, and they were so kind, uh, even, even with the, some of the most de uh, 
difficult thing for me about this were not actually the paralysis. It was actually, it caused paralysis of my GI tract. So I became deeply constipated. And there were nurses there that were so kind, like they did things uh, to help me with my constipation. You would never, parents would not do this for their children. And literally like reach in and grab the obstruction out. It sounds very gross to say, but I mean, this is a testament to the kindness I received. Those wonderful nurses and physical therapists that took me on and did very many special things in pools to get me walking again. And so I, I got there. I was not able to walk or do anything. And uh, they work with me every day, every day. They give me something to do. Even when I couldn't do anything, they would focus on what I could do. Like, okay, you can move your foot up in a, an inch, not to keep doing that while you're laying in bed. Just do that all day long. And so I did all day long. I just <laughs> moving my foot. And it's kind of hard to see like how that's going to result in you walking later. But you have to keep doing that, not be too attached to remembering how easy it used to be and just you know deal with things as they were. And every day I got a little better. And that little was very little. But all of a sudden, about two weeks before I was discharged, maybe I've been there three weeks, I could start to see like how actually now I was able to sit up again. And I was able to transfer into a wheelchair. And I was like, oh, this is great. At least I can get around a wheelchair now. And they were like, no, no, we have to keep going, you know, and uh, they just kept motivating me. And that's the most wonderful people. And they did the, anyone who arrived at the hospital, they would treat this good as so, so wonderful. And they just knew exactly what to do with this Guillain Beret and got me uh, um, many times. They would ask me to do something which I felt I would not be able to do. But um, you know, I just uh, totally placed my trust in them. I was like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? I'll fall on the floor. So what? You know? And uh, so, you know, and I said, even maybe that will catch me. I don't know, a lot of these, there were women who weigh much less than me. So actually, I was more afraid I might fall and then they might strain a back muscle trying to catch me or something. So I was just, just let me fall on the nice cold ground. If I fall, it would be fine. That floor is nice and cold and I'm kind of hot, you know? So just let me fall. Uh, I didn't want them to get hurt, you know? And, uh, but that, women were very strong. I don't care how small they were. They were, they were much, must've done Pilates every moment or something. They're the core strength. And, uh, so sometimes I did fall and, uh, but uh, it actually I had to keep doing stuff like that and uh, really challenging and uh, just leave, uh, work with the anxiety, but you don't have to repress, but don't let it limit. And uh, that got me to walk out of there. Uh, literally, like I went from totally paralyzed for the most part to being able to walk out of there in about five weeks. It's just amazing. Uh, and uh, that actually, these people are so kind. The all all of them, even ones that uh, didn't work with me that much, they all were standing in front of the hospital to watch me walk out of there. They're, I mean, it's it's, uh, it's so so much more than I could ever ask for or repay. And so now I feel very much called that with whatever life I have uh, left, you know. Uh, please, may I use this uh, benefit to repay all uh, sentient beings as really uh, 
feels like uh, this great gift of uh, meaning I receive out of this. May I return all the benefit and wisdom and love I receive in uh, whatever way I'm able to do through the uh, amazing, beautiful thing. Uh, and I do know uh, other people now who have gone through this experience um, that have been much more discouraged by their circumstances. Like I feel it was just like a, a razor's edge I was on where I could have gone deeply into the discouraged thing and maybe, you know, even I die, I guess. Um, and uh, even worse is I know folks who keep going back into it where actually the COVID returns or sometimes not even the COVID return, but the Guillain Barre and the Epstein-Barr return. And there's still possibility that could happen to me though, hasn't happened. Uh, and so I really understand this, how much suffering this brings, but so I don't know. I, I feel so much gratitude for all the training and love and prayers that people gives to me. It made a huge difference and um, it does feel like it was a blessing. And so I, I'm saying that from my own experience and maybe there's some delusion here, <laughs> you know, and uh, anyone who did not experience uh, this in that way, I totally get it. I also experience that suffering too. It's just, uh, I guess by nature of my uh, training and uh, blessings that I receive that uh, none of that has stayed and really uh, what's the right way of saying dissolve like everything into the great expanse of the sky and may all the suffering of all beings whether it's COVID or not may may we all learn to uh, relinquish attachment so that all the suffering may dissolve of its own nature in the great vastness of the sky. <laughs> oh. So yeah, boy, thank you for letting me uh, talk about this experience. You know, it's really uh, felt like all my training came together. Uh, everything I learned about it, Tumo, hypnosis, Dzogchen, Chud practice, uh, Tonglen practice. Uh, <laughs> so that's the, the part of me is a little like, if I were to like write my own story, maybe that would have been a good death, you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> now I wonder what's next, you know? Hopefully next time, uh, also I have this kind of gradual progression <laughs> into the bardo that's a little easier to take than, I don't know, you're on a plane uh, 40,000 feet in the air and a missile hits it or something, <laughs> you find yourself uh, immediately ejected into the bardo and very confused. Uh, so I don't know what the next experience of the bardo, uh, you know, I guess we're always in bardo really, but uh, I don't know, there's a little part of me that's like, that. it's kind of a good way, you know, maybe the ego's clinging to my bardo experience that was the good one. Oh, you missed the, the dying you know but no not really i'm more focused on uh what are the possibilities of uh uh repaying uh, all that uh, i've been given and may i be the most benefit 
<laughs> May I ask you some questions then? Oh, please, yeah. Or yeah. is there more to say? No, no, that, that was, that's it, yeah. You mentioned that you began to feel the body, the dissolution of the elements. Yeah. I'm curious if you were able to detect the discrete steps of that. It's typically mm -hmm. said there's a certain sequence of the elements dissolving, starting with the earth and so on. It's yeah. also said that one can rehearse that in falling asleep because mm -hmm. the falling asleep process is a similar pattern of the dissolution of the elements. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious if you were able to detect the discrete steps of that, if it matched up to what you expected based on your practice of uh, sleep yoga, for example. Uh -huh. That's a very good question. Um, you know, uh, here is where some of my laziness as a student will show. <laughs> In that uh, uh, the precise stages of that, um, for whatever reason, have never quite stayed with me. Even though I've, I've been led through, um, what is it called? This, um, hmm. this is the style of this teaching. It's the it's six, Ruxian, Ruxian. In the Ruxian tradition, this is one of the things you can receive. And I have actually, you know, and also in uh, Bardo and Powa, you know, uh, I received those things. But for whatever reason, I don't know why, uh, I like remember some things, you know, like earth dissolving into fire, or is it fire dissolving into earth? I don't remember, but you know, they talk about this. Uh, and so I didn't really, the stages of that was not really, to me, it seemed like one thing happening all at once. Um, although it is also true, I did not actually go all the way. <laughs> Maybe that would have become more precise. Maybe it was a general dissolving. For me, it felt like everything was just dissolving. And uh, also uh, my um, experience of uh, the natural state was becoming very strong. Uh, and uh, body energy, in particular, the one I noticed the most was uh, the fire-like loom, uh, you know, maybe that's because of um, that maybe the tumult practice or something. Uh, it really felt like uh, in my navel chakra, like this fire is really uh, waning. And it just felt like all the life uh, energy is just waning. The throat was really waning. Not just because I couldn't swallow. Uh, and uh, if I really think about it, it felt like my crown chakra was opening. You know? Maybe third eye, you know, kind of. And uh, heart energy is really uh, waning. And uh, navel chakra is really waning. And uh, Also, uh, um, uh, it's just really funny thing to say. Like, I actually had to work myself very, uh, very diligently to connect with these energies through Salung practice. Because uh, when people would start describing uh, the 
wisdom energies that uh, Sondland practice is supposed to work with. Like uh, I had no innate kind of experience of that. Just a few things like um, I noticed that if something seemed true to me that I would have a feeling of like something seems correct to me, there would be a feeling of its correctness in my gut. Like that, that feels right. right. And then also uh, if I felt a joy, I could feel a, uh, some feeling of that in my heart. And, you know, I think most people have something like that, but I had to really work in my Salung practice to like actually encounter these wisdom energies before doing a Tumo practice. So uh, when, <laughs> it's really funny, like I actually had to like really work to connect with that. And uh, then now I have that uh, and then uh, losing it again was very strange because now it was the connection was going away of its own nature. It wasn't like before. Uh, I guess I was so um, focused on um, my speech, you know, and really, I guess, uh, throat chakra, like this was my whole identity is really more based on this energy, I guess. And uh, and it may be, maybe crown, I don't know. Uh, and so suddenly the, this was going away again, which seemed very strange. And I could, I could feel that um, as if uh, the energy was stirring, you know, and then it was more slow, more slow. Uh, it just uh, dissolving. And um, I felt some sorrow, you know, that, that these energies uh, were dissolving. Uh, but then um, all of this non-dualistic uh, perception kept uh, arriving as that was going. And then that's when I started having all these experiences of uh, people praying for me and seeing them praying and feeling... Uh, blessings arriving in the room and seeing my grandmother and my sister and you know plenty of people who are actually you know appear to be alive <laughs> i guess you know uh uh and so that that was what kind of replaced that so as the um connection to my body uh was waning and i was kind of accepting that and then started really thinking about uh you know, Bardo's arriving. And then I started to feel intuitively like some of the things that I could do in the Bardo. And I got really excited about this idea of uh, uh, going forward in time. <laughs> I, I didn't think about going backwards in time. That's interesting. For some reason, I was really more concerned about um, being of some benefit to some people in the future, particularly my son and uh, my good friends Eric and Jenna and other people too, but uh, their son Arlo. Um, so yeah, it was. I did not feel uh, the stages of that. It felt more like a is all going, all at once. Uh, and so I, I don't know whether that reflects um, my lack of precision about what I was experiencing. Uh, or if it's, but that's just how it was happening for whatever reason. Um, 
or that maybe I wasn't experiencing the full phenomena yet. Like maybe this was early thing. Um, but I gotta tell you, that is a great question. And especially now that I've experienced some form of that, I really got to take those Ruchen teachings again, you know, to go back to do some uh, POA uh, again, you know, and, uh, and take the Six Realms retreat again. Saying, Why not? You know, it's really, uh, uh, it's great. Yeah, because um, to me, it was more like a, My attachment to these things was uh, lessening. And uh, at the same time that the energies themselves, like now that's an interesting question to me, like how, how much of that was attachment lessening also reinforced the energy? I'm not sure. Uh, somehow, um, yeah, it's a very interesting question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure of that. Actually, I would need to ask some. I would need to ask more about. That. Do you have any feeling about that? That's interesting. I never thought about this. Uh, how much of uh, I don't. It seems like these the wisdom energies are innately existing, and not dependent on anything, but uh, other than just having the body, I guess. So I, it's this really uh, intriguing question to me. Like. Was my lack of attachment causing some of that waning, or was that just happening? The Nirmanakaya feels like uh, it feels like those should be innately existing, and they're just dissolving. I don't know. Maybe I, I, I'm not sure, but it did seem like I was less attached at the same time. Maybe they're, they're becoming stronger too. It's very strange. I really must study this more. <laughs> I don't know what happened, actually. <laughs> it's a great question. <laughs> what was your plan when you were given 12 hours notice? What was your death plan? Of course, there are many ways that one can consciously die. Which one was your plan? Well, you know, they gave me this mantra, you know, my, my gurus gave me this mantra. So I thought I will say this mantra for the benefit of all beings. Particularly, I was thinking about the people that I could feel were very close to death or had died recently. And I uh, really wanted to kind of continue doing this, uh, saying this mantra. Um, and also I was very mindful of the fact that uh, like 12 hours to me was a very meaningful number and that I've done so many psychedelic experiences, you know, and I thought, wow, that's like a good full acid trip, you know, <laughs> how wonderful, you know. Like that's a, that's the number I can deal with, you know, and uh, uh, yeah, I I, um, I went through that life review, and I just really wanted to continue practicing that way, just saying the mantra and uh, praying for healing of all beings and um, processing my gratitude. Um, yeah, gratitude became very quickly uh, after about a half hour of just kind of grieving what I would lose. At, at some point, it just spontaneously arose that I thought, well, how lucky were you that you ever had this thing? You know, it was like, and how many people never got to experience that even once, you know, or maybe they had other good things, but, uh, you know, I just started to feel gratitude for the life I'd led. And then 
the whole thing just flipped. It was just really uh, expressing gratitude and uh, doing something like Chud and uh, Chud and uh, uh, Tumo uh, with the bliss, you know, and particularly when they gave me that fire medicine and, uh, and using uh, hypnosis to deal with discomfort in general uh, and maintaining uh, awareness, you know, thinking um, this is, you know, a lot of trikcho uh, and a lot of, uh, you know, shine, shamatha kind of trainings. And it's like really using every practice that I'd ever practiced all at once uh, and trying to remember the view you know, uh, and just, um, so in a way it was almost like doing every practice and doing none, as it was just whatever arriving, I'm working with whatever is arriving. And maybe that's really the essence of all the things I ever learned is, you know, uh, letting happen whatever happens, you know, leave it as it is. And that became very much the subject of the rest of that recovery was accepting whatever limitation I had and just leaving it as it is and uh, working with whatever um, context I was in, you know. And, um, so there's a way in which I feel like I did every practice and uh, at the same time, uh, I did none. It's just, uh, it's very strange, you know, and very... Uh, grounded, uh, surprisingly grounded, <laughs> you know, because I, I know a lot about dissociation and I used a lot of dissociation growing up. And indeed that was my main worry about approaching Dzogchen practice when I put a Quetenzin Wangyal and he told me I could say this, this is real, <laughs> you know, instead of this is a dream. Why don't you say this? This is, you know, uh, let me see what happens, you know, and, uh, so yeah, it was, I felt very um, grounded and uh, this realization is uh, in me, you know. I, I, it's, it's very easy to uh, cry <laughs> thinking about uh, how grateful I am, you know, and, um, uh, and how much uh, I would love to be able to be of uh, as much benefit as I can with this life. So uh, in a way, I felt like I was, uh, I think the, the bliss element of Tumo was uh, very powerful in those uh, moments. Um, and there's something strange about that because uh, I think the way people normally think about bliss, they think of it in this kind of like dualistic way, you know, it's like, I don't feel any pain. Because actually I did feel pain, but um, it was that the pain didn't bother me. I didn't. Uh, it's funny because we actually know how this occurs in the brain. Uh, there is a way that you can experience pain without suffering. Uh, we are able to demonstrate this using hypnosis. It's the anterior cingulate cortex as a way of uh, um, removing the suffering of pain. And so I was really kind of in that place. And also, not only was I not experiencing uh, pain, I was really feeling this tremendous freedom and liberation of uh, not, um, I guess, just accepting things as they were. And I just kind of stayed with me, you know, and actually, 
uh, ever since I did uh, Tumo, this is one of the things that I checked out with Tenzin Wongo, like he was asking me last time, you know, um, what was it like when I went to talk to him? And one of the things that I asked him about was um, that, and this is actually true, uh, still to this day, even when, you know, was asking him about this, it was, you know, like during the retreat. And um, one of the things I noticed is that after I left the two most sessions that uh, I didn't need to be doing all the, um, I don't want to say too much of secret things, um, but, you know, one of the things about Tumo is uh, uh, this body positions, you know, uh, this kind of thing. Cool core. Yeah, yeah. You know, particularly in the, the Draklung, the most wrathful one, there's one that's called like a lion pose. I guess me saying line doesn't tell you what it is, but so maybe I've kept the secret, but whatever. Uh, anyone who's interested, you, this is real. You can do these things and it's wonderful. And I highly recommend you find a lineage where someone will teach you these things, you know? Um, but um, how I said this to Tenzin Wangyal, I notice uh, like now, anytime I breathe, I feel this connection, you know, as, I can do now. <laughs> and I, it's, uh, this, this bliss is not dependent on anything at all. You know, it's actually can be, if I don't get too hypnotized by my experience, uh, it, it never, it, it always existed. And that's, you know, that's the thing that I think is a little strange for particularly hypnosis people to approach they think maybe it's like hypnosis, we transform suffering into happiness. But I think actually this is different than that. It's about connecting with the bliss that was always there. You know, it's always there, like the sun in the sky, you know, always radiating love and bliss and love and everything, everything irradiate from that. Um, and so I, that was what I checked out with him was, you know, I didn't know maybe I had fucked up or something. Now my breathing was, you know, was just gonna make me crazy or something. I didn't feel like it would, but that was what I checked out with him actually. And uh, it was um, like, this sounds like a good result of practice. Not, not a bad, crazy thing. And it's really, uh, I think that was one of the times that he's like really, uh, uh, talks with me about um, the importance of uh, uh, passing on what you learn. And um, he, uh, what, what, he actually said this to uh, not long after to our entire group and he talked about how he's actually not that very much attached to um, the role of being a teacher. And I found that to be really funny because in his, for my money, he is a fantastic teacher, amazing. Like, you know, who, who could learn so much and integrate it so much with many different mindsets, you know, and, uh, and also have such a high level of realization of the practice that not only does he able to explain the conceptual view from a, a psychological point of view, a Dharmic view, and even uh, different lineages of Dharma, because you know he knew Namki Norbu, and so 
he knows the Nyingma way of thinking of this, and the, of course the Bonpa way. And there are different lineages in the bone, you know. It's, so it's wild, you know. And so you know, I would think like, wow, you know, this, this is like the a teacher of teachers for sure. Um, and even his teacher is a teacher of teachers. And even teach his teacher Yangzhen remembers they even teach the Dalai Lama, you know. Uh, it's so very. Uh, I think like, how can he say this, you know? Uh, and he said like literally. Um, he, he was asked to teach uh, by Yangtze Rinpoche uh, when he is uh, still a monk, you know, and uh, it was like um, at that time there were so few um, Geshe's uh, capable of teaching in uh, when they were in exile there in Nepal and India. And so uh, Yangtze Rinpoche said to him, this is your responsibility. You have, you know, gotten these teachings and you're, uh, you should pass on. And so that was kind of like what I got out of that was uh, I had experienced something and so uh, I needed to with uh, I needed to be deeply involved with trying to maintain the teachings at whatever level I could. And so that was particularly when I started helping here in Colorado, uh, like not just going to retreats, but like doing anything like I make the coffee, you know, <laughs> help find the hall where we would do these things. Uh, make announcements, uh, keep time, uh, make food, anything, anything that I could do, you know, to uh, be a part of keeping the teachings going. And that's what my attitude towards this is uh, uh, also advertising the teachings and trying to find uh, people who would be uh, capable of receiving uh, some benefit from it, you know, and which, you know, my teachers are always like anyone, you know, that'll give the teaching to anyone, any sentient being without exception, you know, even people are pretty rude, I've noticed. <laughs> you know, it's like, not only they not approach with devotion, but actually rude people that teach everyone exactly the same with great, uh, as a psychologist, I often wonder, is that wise, you know, it seems like, you know, maybe you should be thinking, you know, some people, you know, their capacity isn't good enough or something, but no, they just give the teachings to everyone. Uh, and they will, you know, adapt if they know you, the teachings, but the, yeah, they give it to everyone without exception. It's amazing. Um, when I had that experience with Tenzin Wangyal, that really, so I got this a benefit. I now have responsibility to continue uh, in whatever way uh, I'm able to do this. And that really uh, was uh, one of the things that really uh, put me on this path to wanting to teach at Naropa. And I realized Naropa is the ideal place for me to uh, bring this life mission I have of bringing Dharma and psychology uh, together. And uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I feel a sense of responsibility. There's this wonderful Christian uh, saying. Uh, I forget if it's from Ephesians or where it is, but they say, uh, much is expected from those unto whom much is given. And uh, so I really feel this very strongly, uh, particularly uh, I got that uh, when Tenzin Wangyal started talking about, uh, after I mentioned my experience, you know, the responsibility of teaching arises uh, when you have gotten something. And that's really, um, 
does. So anyway, I just wanted to finish that because I remember you had asked me about that last time. I was thinking about what that moment was like. And I was actually more focused on um, uh, wanting to share what I have experienced. Uh, and again, any misunderstandings are mine. <laughs> so I don't want to necessarily share that, but uh, you know, who knows? You know? But uh, some things I'm quite certain of. And uh, really, this stuff has been so beneficial. And I have to say my experience of uh, almost dying there, that really uh, affirmed me. Because uh, I have met people like really there suffering so badly with uh, COVID-19 and Guillain-Barre and Epstein-Barr, and it keeps coming back, you know, and uh, that did not happen to me. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of this has to do with all kinds of factors, but I have no doubt in my mind, the blessings that I receive uh, and my, all of that has something to do with why uh, I have steadily always gotten better rather than um, gotten worse and why I got better so much faster than people usually do. Um, you know, uh, so much better than even they forecast. Like they were saying, I would probably leave the hospital. It would be a good goal if I could leave in a wheelchair. But these, these people kept pushing me, you know, and instead I left walking. And it's funny because they, they, they gave me a walker to leave the hospital, uh, but they took it away from me because uh, they wanted to see if I could do it without the walker. And so I could, um, it was not pretty, but I was walking. And uh, I never used the walker at home even once. This was so funny. I paid, I don't know, $100 for this thing. Uh, I should give it to someone else, I guess now. <laughs> someone else will need, I will give you a walker. <laughs> so I don't know. Like, uh, uh, this is really, um, I just, yeah, this, the other thing it reminds me about with this um, is, um, hmm. Uh, responsibility of uh, uh, of teaching others and, and not uh, being too attached, you know, to um, meditative experiences, I guess, or realizations, or however we want to think of this. You know, it's really also those must be joyfully uh, dissolved into the great expanse of the sky. And then I feel like that is where they really become most powerful, like not holding on to anything uh, and still doing whatever arises that uh, is important. And so for me, it's uh, about recommitting to um, how I can be of the most benefit to myself and others. And, you know, I know I still get rehypnotized. The, the way that I know it is that people make me angry sometimes. You know, it's like, oh, damn it, you know. And uh, can I let it dissolve into the great expanse of the sky? Yes, but still, uh, I have no doubt I get rehypnotized uh, by the dreamlike nature of the self and uh, reality. And I'm enjoying working with that and playing with it. And but there's no doubt in my mind uh, all these teachings I uh, receive. Uh, made for uh, this great um, opportunity to do learn, uh, practice everything I had ever learned. Uh, and even things like I haven't talked about, like uh, how deeply we can learn through um, loving people. Like that was a big part of that was, you know, not even something we normally 
Well, I guess there are some sort of traditions of Dharma that talk about this, you know, karma mudra or something, you know. But uh, what I really learned through deep love that people gives to me, you know, in, in my life, even people that are not Dharma practitioners, they're just very loving people, you know, like a, my friend Jill, you know, and Bethany, and the crazy nurse, you know. Uh, it's really uh, so much love, you know, uh, and how powerful that is, uh, and how much wisdom there is in just just loving unconditionally people. I, that is enough wisdom, really. You not even learn any of these other things I learned. Uh, if you had that, then that would be innately good enough. I mean, actually, I feel like that's what the Dharma is really pointing to, is really uh, not a, a so much a, a philosophy that needs to be maintained, but um, a, a seamless experience of love and compassion uh, and the knowledge of what could be done to help the person in front of you and yourself uh, and the world in general. It's like that. That's what, what this uh, realization is about. Not about um, some philosophy I can maintain in a debate and sound really cool. <laughs> and that's kind of fun too. <laughs> but uh, that one won't help you when you're dying. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe it does. I don't know. But what really helps is, uh, yeah, non-attachment and love. That one they help, and this experience really brought that together for me um so i don't know uh, i guess at some point uh unless you know uh they really invent this neural link stuff and i i uh don't die at all and i uh, get uploaded into elon musk's uh, mars colony or something <laughs> even then probably there'll be some bardo oh, it'd be interesting to see you know uh what happens to the teachings as uh, we get into this transhumanist, uh, like where does transhumanist meet uh, Rajayana and Dzogchen? I feel like there's definitely going to be something there. I don't know what, uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I think it, it's enough to do in the traditional teachings. There's more than more you could learn in one lifetime, anyways. And so uh, I guess maybe I would say then, and you're asking about the practices. Um, I'm so grateful to all my teachers, Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche, teach me a Tumo, Chud, give me Nundro, you know, um, touch me so many different Dzogchen teachings. Uh, and then Geshe uh, Jungdrung Rinpoche, you know, who lives here in, in uh, in Denver, and it gave me so many practices also and empowerments and give, give so much personal time, uh, even concerned with whether I'm hungry, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing, uh, really care about me as a human being, invite me to parties and uh, come over for soup, tukpa and <laughs> momo, and you know, it's really wonderful. And uh, Kempo Jungdrung Rinpoche, you know, who, uh, taught me the Kusum Rangskar check where a text that comes from Tumo in our tradition comes from a couple texts, I guess, but the one I learned is from that one. Um, but uh, 
and you know study uh, so much that text and all of the practices that come from the Kusum Rangshkar. Uh, you come and just read word by word that text over five years, you know, and still he's doing over the internet, you know, it's really not, not stopping. And um, so I just really uh, want to encourage anyone that maybe you heard me talk about these things that are real. You could do these things. Why don't you, you know? And do you uh, need to do all of them? Uh, you know, no, just do whatever is available that will make it better, better, better. Start wherever you are. And oddly enough, uh, I feel like in the end, uh, no matter how many fancy things you receive, uh, it comes down to this moment anyways, and how attached you are to your experience of this moment. Uh, you can get uh, just learning uh, shamatha shinane meditation, you can get this. Uh, is it possible you can learn more and more about it through taking more trainings and teachings? For sure you can. Uh, however, uh, it will be enough even if you got one, one bit, then you got all of it all at once. So never, never feel like at the beginning is not as good as the end. Like, uh, I think I mentioned also there's this wonderful Oriyoki meal chant in the Zen tradition of Sanju Suzuki Roshi that he shared with Trungpa Rinpoche students. It says, the holy Dharma is good in the beginning, the middle, and the end. Uh, and so to me, it feels like all of these practices are good. Go out and, and do them and, and enjoy and uh, investigate the supreme uh, mysteries of our mind and our self. It is quite different than we think. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful place to leave it. Dr. Ian Wickramasekar, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate so much your kindness in these uh, interviews and your wisdom, your insight. And uh, thank you for doing this for the uh, whole uh, community of people interested in uh, spirituality and the truth. I watch uh, your videos all the time and I really treasured this opportunity. Thank you so much. It was very kind. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.